listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 52. Watch your tone, counselor. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. In this episode, appellate specialist Chris Donovan and I will discuss how you deal with projecting the proper and most effective tone in an appellate brief. So, Chris Donovan, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, you and I have talked in the past quite a bit about workflows and some of the nitty-gritty of appellate practice One of the things I wanted to do this season of the podcast is to dig more deeply into certain aspects of appellate advocacy. And specifically in this show, I wanted to talk to you about the tone of briefs. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in in literary terms, uh, if we remember back to uh, ENC 1101, or maybe some of us are English majors, uh, tone typically refers to the, the mood implied by the author's word choice and the way that the text makes a reader feel. And so tone, an author chooses in a piece of writing, can invoke you know, emotions or perspectives or that sort, of, that sort of thing. And I think the same is true for appellate writing and advocacy. The way that we choose our words and how we link them together is important to the feelings we generate in our audience, which is, of course, appellate judges. So, you know, there's a professional aspect to this, of course, right? Certain certain tones and words we should just start off by saying are, are just not professional, and and some of that I feel like is pretty much non non negotiable. Wouldn't you Wouldn't you agree? I completely agree. I mean, I, I think. Uh, I mean, I, let me back up for a minute just to add some spin on on your introduction regarding tone. I, mean, I, I think that going into any uh, anything you write, whether it's an email or a uh, brief, you have to always keep in mind that anything we say, especially in written form, is inferior to doing it in person because you you can't read facial expressions, you can't read the hand expressions. You, it, it's it, it, a person reading it, it. The reader could also be impacted by something going on in their life, so they may not read it the way you had intended it. So I think that always needs to be kept in mind. But there's obvious non as you phrased it non-negotiable things like attacking either your opponent the opponent's attorney uh or the the trial court or the judges you're in front of i mean i think those are are fairly uh non-negotiable and by attack i mean that very broadly uh personal insults um uh ad hominem attacks uh Certainly, vulgarity. Unless, unless it's like you're quoting something from the the trial record that happened that is relevant, uh, vulgarity probably shouldn't be in there. And I think that's uh, those are. I think those are pretty obvious. I think so too. And I would add to that, like extreme informality. Um, sometimes things that experienced advocates might get away with in a trial court you know, in front of judges that they know, you know, that that might be okay in the trial court, but I think it's probably not appropriate in appellate court, no matter, no matter what the case or no matter who you are, uh, there's some level of formality that's just absolutely required to. Well, I'd be curious to know if you could, if maybe if you wouldn't mind elaborate on what you have in mind there, because, uh, you know, there, there, 
some there is a certain level of subjectivity when it comes to extreme informality. I mean, I think some people would say, oh, the use of contractions would be too informal. Whereas I, in some contexts, I'm not sure I agree with that. So what do you mean by extreme informality? Well, by extreme, I mean something that's too familiar, too conversational, you know, not re- not uh, respectful of the process. And, and it's one of those, you know it when you see it sorts of things. I think that um, that's generally not a problem. I think that the um, the more interesting issues probably are these subtle distinctions that we all have to make in in tone as as we try to be good advocates. For me, the decisions about the tone of my writing depend a lot on what type of brief I'm writing. Do you agree with that? Do you feel like there's a different tone to say an initial brief or an answer brief? Yes, I think so. I mean, there, there's, uh, there's, con- there's some consistency there, but I think you have, uh, there are certainly different approaches that you, you, you would uh, take uh, in your tone to be effective for either whether you're doing an initial brief or an answer brief. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. Chances are you don't deal with appellate bonds on a daily basis, but when you do, it's important and it's urgent. CSBA has an extensive collection of educational and reference materials on their website, including articles like, How Much Does an Appeal Bond Cost? or Using Real Estate to Secure Appeal Bonds, and even has a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements. But if you still have questions or just want to talk to a knowledgeable appellate bond specialist, call CSBA at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes, but I suggest you take an opportunity right now to add their contact information to your own contact list so you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. In addition to being a longtime sponsor of this podcast, CSBA is a premier sponsor of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. You know, for me, I think that an initial brief, you know, you're, you're coming to the court and you're asking for something and you're asking them to take some action on your behalf, right, or on your client's behalf. So I, I think that you have to convey a little bit, um, I don't know if righteousness is the right word, but there has to be something in the tone, I think, and it's subtle, but that motivates the court um, to want to rule in your, on your behalf. It's maybe a, a slight degree of indignation, maybe, you know, certainly there has to be a sense of urgency. I think the court has to feel some sort of desire to, you know, to help you in this process. And, and I think that that, to me, uh, that's important in an initial brief. Listen, there's a fine line. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like briefs that try to hard to pull on the heartstrings or wave the flag, you know, that becomes too obvious. It has to be a little bit more subtle than that. 
if it smacks you in the face, it's probably too much and insulting, a little insulting to the court. It's, it's a hard balance to find. But again, it's another one of those things I feel like I, I know it when I see it. You know, uh, it's not completely objective. It's something that, that presents a little bit more of a, a righteous indignation that your client has been wronged, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I guess my, uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you. But so I, before we met to talk today, I, I was just kind of reading what different, how different quote unquote expert stylists or writers view tone uh, and, and taking sort of a survey of that. And, and uh, there was something that was in uh, Justice Scalia, former Justice Scalia and Brian Gardner's book uh, called Making Your Case, The Art of Persuading Judges that, that really struck me as true for whether you're writing, regardless of what you're writing for the for the court, but particularly when you're writing a brief, be it the initial brief or the answer brief. They said that, that, that advocates should strive for, quote, respectful intellectual equality. In other words, the example they gave is they, 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 the fact that uh, um, the Solicitor General is often said to be the 10th justice. In other words, he, he is <laughs> there to uh, participate in convincing the court. I mean, there's a, there's a persuasion there, but he's also there to get the court to go the, the, the whatever way is the right, just way, so to say. Uh, and, and, and I think that, and I agree with the book here that says that as an advocate, that's what your role is as well. I mean, yes, you're representing your client, but you're also, and you need to be respectful and understand that you, you have to defer, be, give deference to those. You're not, they're equal necessarily, the judges, but it, it is still a, a, an intellectual conversation and you're there to help the judges along and, 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 and hopefully persuade them towards your side, but also not take cheap shots and, and to get there. In other words, your, your, your goal is, uh, 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 intellectualism, not emotionalism with the judges. I don't disagree with that either. I, that's sort of the ideal. I think right. it might be a little bit naive to to uh, pretend that there's not some emotional component. <laughs> you know, we're all human beings and judges are human beings and we all have, you know, emotional reactions to, to, uh, to facts and to issues and that sort of thing. But certainly I think, you know, yes, ideally it, it is certainly an intellectual exercise um, I'm, I'm just suggesting there can be a, a little bit of a shading, sure. <laughs> a, uh, you know, some, some urgency to right or wrong. Now, I, to me, I think the answer brief has a, has a different feel, uh, for me when, when I write it and when I, you know, certainly when I'm, when I'm able to do what I want to do with it. An answer brief, I do think is much more matter of fact than the law. It's maybe a little, maybe a tiny bit dismissive in the tone, but not, but not as to the argument. Uh, I want to create, if possible, this sense of, oh, there's nothing to see here, judges. You know, there's, there's nothing special. This was a run-of-the-mill application of the law. Uh, I, I don't want to counter any uh, emotional appeal of the of the appellant's brief with with more emotion. I want to diffuse it, right? I want to try and again, you know, the, move along. There's nothing here, kind of thing. You know, as an appellee, we know that the the probability of success is generally on your side. The odds are forever in your favor. So, you know, you're already kind of going downhill. Um, you don't 
in a good way, right. you know, downhill. momentum going downhill. Uh, momentum is on your side. Let's put it that way. Uh, you don't want to seem like you're trying too hard, you know, in your answer brief. But, but I do think to me, it's, um, I try and uh, generate a, a little bit different tone in an answer brief than I do in an initial brief. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And, and I think, uh, um, you, you see that particularly in, when you read about, you know, how to, how to prepare a, a response to a petition for cert in the U S Supreme court. I mean, the goal there is to say, yeah, this case isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> you know, you know, this isn't worth your time judges. Uh, no. and I think that there's a certain, for me as an appellee, I, I when I represent the appellee, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. My goal there is to show that this is fairly straightforward application of law to facts. The judge did correct. You know, there's no point in you spending too much time with this judge, just PCA it and get out of the door. If we, I'm, I love opinions, but as an appellee, uh, I want PCAs. If I feel like I've done my job, if I get, if I'm convinced for a PCA, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, I think your point is well taken. That I think that this is um, exaggerated a little bit in extraordinary writ petitions because you know um, creating that sense of urgency is even more important because you know you're not necessarily even going to get heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as a petitioner, so I think there's even more urgency there, and I think it's the same when you're res- you know if you're responding to a petition that's uh, you know this you're playing down that this is not the kind of case that you know you need to grant grant cert on or grant some type of extraordinary writ. Uh, this is just you know this is just run of the mill stuff. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, well, and I will say that from a uh, uh, I think this is probably true regardless of whether it's an initial brief or a petition for cert. I, I think it's but 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 it seems particularly true in, in a petition for cert or extraordinary writ in state court cases that showing and not telling is really important. In other words, uh, uh, because you got to give proper deference to the fact that, especially in the extraordinary writ context, if you're dealing with a cert, particularly in state court, uh, the standards of review are so against you and you need to acknowledge mm-hmm. that and realize that you have the uphill battle and, 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 and not necessarily have that righteous tone in, in that, because it's going to be hard <laughs> to, to do it. Whereas uh, to me, it's so, so the uh, search should be uh, very cautiously argued and the tone uh, should be not defeatist necessarily, but recognizing that you have the uphill battle and, and, and then showing though, why you do meet that, uh, and leaving it to your conclusion to show it's just, you know, to show that, uh, you made it. Yeah, no, I definitely think you definitely have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary writ and, you know, you're not entitled to the relief and, and yet <laughs> what you're asking for is so important. Right. It's so outrageous that you get it anyway. You should get it anyway. Right. <laughs> what about you know, this? This gets tricky. What about tone in post-opinion motions, and, and particularly you know motions for rehearing that sort of thing? I mean, we have talked about and could do a whole show on post-opinion motions and how they're not justified in a lot of a lot of uh, instances anyway. But but assuming that we have something that's that you know meets the the letter and spirit of the rules and are filing a motion for rehearing. What about tone in that? That's a little trickier. It's very tricky, particularly because you're trying to tell three judges that have ruled one way that you think they might've 
ruled wrong. <laughs> I mean, even the standard in state court is is tricky. It seems, I mean, it, you're you're safe because it is the standard, but it seems offensive almost that the court has overlooked or misapprehended yeah. some point of law or fact. Uh, yeah, it's very easy to trigger some defensiveness on that. Just stating the standard, <laughs> you know, people might exactly. get defensive. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I always try to, at least in the beginning, the first time I identify that statement or that standard, I always say respectfully, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to try to lessen the blow of because that standard is going to create a reaction, and mm-hmm. and. and the reaction that you want to create when drafting this is uh, drafting these post opinion motions is not um, screw you. I'm going to keep my, <laughs> you know, you don't want that to be abrasive. So to say uh, you, you want it to say you want thoughtful con- You want to spur thoughtful contemplation by the judge. Like, Oh yeah. You know what? He may have a good point that maybe, I, or she, maybe he or she had a good point. I, I got to go back and look at this. Yeah, And certainly I have seen by other people and I'm sure you have seen motions for rehearing that have exactly that tone, very accusatory, you know, the court, uh, is in cahoots with <laughs> whoever, yeah, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it it can be ugly, but it, it can be. The I, I I've seen one uh, uh, recently where it was it had this almost it, ha- it was condescending. It said, "Well, you know, like in case you haven't read the briefs thoroughly." Uh, or you don't didn't read this case enough. Let me explain it to you a little further. I mean, that is not the tone you want no. to take. You you should assume they thoroughly have looked at everything and researched. They meaning the court, uh, and that you're just asking them very narrowly. Hey, this this might be something that you overlooked that 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 could change the result. Yeah. I mean, humbly speaking, <laughs> it has to be it has to be something uh, strong. Right. For me to advise my client to undertake something like that. So so that's helpful. Right. I'm not I'm not going to go down that road if I'm if I have something that's a very weak argument. But if I have something that seems like it's a decent argument. um, Yeah, I think I think the tone is almost apologetic. You know, it's like, hey, sorry to bring this up, but, you know, we think maybe there was an issue here. (laughs) Yes. A hat in hand is what I was thinking. (laughs) so, and, and just as an aside, I do think that there's probably uh, uh, one uh, thing that you file that should be edited more so than anything else. And that is a post. If you're going to file a post opinion motion, it should be that because everybody gets these decisions and, and, and we're all human. We're going to have an emotional reaction. We believe in our clients uh, uh, cases. We wouldn't have taken it on. So, uh, Sit down, furiously write your emotional reaction <laughs> as if it's your motion. There's that old saying: then put it in a drawer, and a, and, a, and a week later, you know, within the time deadline, obviously, pull it back out and and, and rewrite it a couple more times <laughs> to remove the emotion. <laughs> now, I do think um, that the response to a motion for rehearing, especially if it's one of the ones we're talking about, one that's over the top, one that really doesn't have a basis. I, I do feel a little bit more licensed to be indignant uh, in that instance, indignant that I'm spending my time to respond, indignant that the court is having to respond, you know, pointing out uh, with great clarity the, you know, the fact that the motion doesn't meet the requirements of the rules or whatever. I, you know, in defense of the court, I feel like I can be a little bit more uh, flamboyant at that point. I've already won. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm defending right. the court on a, you know, 
frivolous or, or poorly thought out uh, motion for rehearing, uh, I feel like I have more leeway there. I tend to agree. I mean, as long as it's it's focused on the, and I know that you're saying this, uh, as long as it's focused on your opposing counsel's argument and not your opposing counsel, I I think you have uh, more leeway, more leeway to be flamboyant and, and indignant. And, you know, this is a way, yet another waste of time. (laughs) I mean, maybe not say it like that, but, uh, uh, or, you know, showing that this is merely re-arguing the briefs. I've in those situations, I, I love charts, especially if they cut and pasted a lot of the same stuff from their briefs into their motion. And I'll just literally put a chart that shows word for word how it's the same. But uh, uh, yeah, I think that that is certainly the response. You have more abilities there too. And in a way, although I always feel sorry for my client that, you know, we're spending the money to, to do it. Um, drafting those types of responses can be some of the more fun stuff that we do because we can open up a little bit and, uh, you know, pull out the big guns. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I'm still I think I've said this on prior podcast. I'm I still wish that the the uh, appellate rules committee would amend the uh, uh, appellate rule to follow the federal standard where a response is only required when it's asked by the court. That would really save our clients money. Yes, yeah, I agree. So I wanted to talk specifically about some you know stylistic tonal choices because we, we've talked in, in generalities, but I want to talk about uh, some of the specifics. Are there are there words that you think are generally off limits? You know, I guess some exceptions could apply, maybe mostly off limits in connection with, uh, you know, the, some of the discussion we had before about, you know, tonal choices are just wrong. Are there specific words that you key on, on that you think are just generally wrong? Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, it's more the obvious ones like uh, that, you know, again, it, it comes, it's, it's a question of, or is this a word that is attacking or otherwise challenging the uh, uh, dignity of the, of the, of your opponent <laughs> or is it a, a lawyer or is this a word that's attacking his, his argument? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and so obviously if you're saying, Hey, the, the, the other side is, is lying, you know, that's, that's improper. I mean, I actually had a client who wanted me to say, you know, something like that in a brief that he clearly lied on the stand or something like that. And, and, and we basically settled on, on misrepresentation or, and of course you qualify you know, possible misrepresentations, <laughs> you know, or something that lessens the blow that, uh, uh, um, that you're, calling an ad hominem or a name or something that, that goes to the person, not their argument or their statements. Yeah. Yeah. I think words that imply dishonesty, you just have to be really careful with, uh, and use very judiciously, uh, liar, lying, you know, misrepresented, dishonest, um, you know, uh, they're very strong words. Um, they're words that I think are going to jump out at the court and, um, you know, for the most part, should be avoided. I think words that imply any sort of lack of intelligence, you know, like like dumb, or I'm not sure I've seen dumb in a public, moronic people use, which essentially means dumb, right? Um, those right. types of words, or certainly any words that imply a lack of skill of the lawyers, you know, um, I just, you just have to be real careful with that. I, I think it doesn't, 
There may be instances where uh, it's justified, but boy, I, I double check and triple check if I'm going to talk about something being, you know, like inarticulate or absurd or, uh, you know, poorly reasoned. Um, like you said, you, you want to hate the argument, not the lawyer, right? <laughs> right. Well, and now I will say that, and maybe I, I, I this is wrong, I don't know, but there have been times where I will phrase it like this, that, you know, I've argued X, Y, and Z. Opposing counsel's response is difficult to understand, or, you know, so-and-so, not opposing counsel, so-and-so's response is difficult to understand, but it is incorrect for the following reasons, you know, or appears to be, if I'm understanding him correctly, that he's incorrect or she's incorrect for the following reasons. And, And I don't see anything wrong with that, especially if, you know, if it's true, <laughs> I guess right. it's a matter of perspective, but you know, like for instance, I don't know how you feel about the word absurd, calling an argument absurd. You know, I, I could see using it in an instance. Sometimes arguments are absurd. Sometimes you have pro se lawyers right. on the other side, some or pro se litigants on the other side. Sometimes you have, you know, arguments that truly are absurd, but, but I try to limit those types of characterizations to something that's really, you know, it's kind of inarguable that it's absurd. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that if you're going to use that, I mean, just like any adjective to describe the argument, you, you need to back it up. You need to be able to show the fallacy in the argument, uh, uh, probably through a syllogism, you know, that shows exactly why his major, his or her major or minor premise is incorrect which would mean that the argument is probably absurd. Yeah. yeah. And of course, always directed to the argument and not to the, you know, to, right. the, to the party or to the lawyer, well, maybe even to the party, but not to the lawyer. Um, are there words right. that you like better when you're trying to convey a strong message? Are there any particular words that are your go-to words for, for saying someone is wrong? We can only say it so many, so many times, so many ways. Right. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, um, again, I, I, so I, I will, I don't think that I have problems with things like, you know, so-and-so's argument is wrong or so-and-so's, uh, argument is incorrect for the following reasons. The so-and-so's, the trial court is aired for the following yep. reasons. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, opposing counsel, um, or excuse me, the, when I say opposing counsel, I mean the party's name, cause I would never usually call out opposing counsel, which I think would be crossing the line. But, uh, 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 so-and-so's argument is erroneous. I think those are all fair game that they're, they're part of the transition from uh, here's a my roadmap and now here's how I'm going to prove it. You know what I mean? So I think there has to be some sort of transition words like that, that, that are basically your conclusion. Then you're going to back it up. And then you probably repeat it at the end when you're asking for a reversal or, or affirmance or whatever it is relief you're asking. For. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, arguments are wrong, they're incorrect, they're mistaken. I like a lot of the mis uh, prefix words, you know, misconstrued, misapprehended, misapplied, you sure. know, because it seems to um, not, in, not necess- it's not necessarily intentional, right? Their argument is wrong, right. but they're not necessarily lying about it, right? They're, they're, Right. Uh, it's just a different level. Now, listen, this goes right back to the, you know, show the court rather than tell the court, right? Um, if, I use, exactly. if I use a uh, lesser uh, 
less accusatory word, but I make a great case, the court gets the point, right? And it's even better if they reach the conclusion themselves than me telling them. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, um, again, looking at some of the other uh, uh, treatises out there, I pulled out uh, uh, Brian Gardner's The Winning Brief, and uh, one of his examples, I think I can be quite short in explaining, is a perfect example. So, he, you know, he always puts like, here's what somebody did, but do this instead. And and somebody said, so-and-so's engaged in highly unprofessional conduct. You know, and so he said, don't do that because that's attacking the person and it's drawing the conclusion for the court. Instead, do this. And he says, so-and-so, after such and so, after the examination, so-and-so did the following. And then in bullet points, the uh, person summarized the different acts that should lead the court to conclude was unprofessional. <laughs> and then you can sort of uh, 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 end it with, and these, this was unprofessional and the court should find it. So, or whatever, in other words, you're, you're not starting the, the uh, explanation out by calling, by drawing the conclusion for the court and saying the person's unprofessional. You're the, you're instead focusing on their conduct and letting the court reach that decision. Yeah. Same concept with arguments, focus on the arguments incorrectness and the reasons why it's incorrect. And then, ending with, and here's why the court, and that's why the court should find this unreasonable or irrelevant. Right, and let the judges draw their conclusion. Right. Uh, I'm curious, how do you feel about the word nonsensical? I find that I've used this word in in several briefs recently, and I try to only use it when I really think it's nonsensical, but uh, where do you think that falls on uh, on the spectrum? It's certainly uh, a gray area, uh, and I—I I mean, because there are some arguments that are nonsensical, yeah. and it—it—it's not necessarily because the person who made the arguments is dumb or anything. They—they're stuck with an argument they, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? Or, or they—they're you know everybody's busy, and we we didn't reread that argument; it didn't make any sense, yeah. you know. Um, so I think it's probably okay it, it, but i i certainly uh uh see some has hesitancy yeah it's on one it. of those use very carefully words i think you know? right. um but along those same lines what do you think of the word specious I mean, do you have a problem with that one not off the top of my head you know i don't see that a lot but that's not a bad word maybe i'll add that to the uh <laughs> add that to the i see it a lot that's why i asked yeah. uh I might have to uh, dictionary.com that and see what all the, uh, you know, exactly what the uh, implication is. But, uh, well, I mean, when, and I actually did dictionary.com it and the, and the, uh, the, the, the definition, there's two different definitions in some respects. One is superficially plausible, but actually wrong. And I'm okay with that definition. But the other one is misleading in appearance. Mm. so almost like you're saying the guy is misleading. So I, I, to me, that's another one of those borderline words. But I have used it. So. Yeah. Well, misleading in appearance. Mm. I'm, I'm liking it more the more that I think about it. <laughs> it's certainly better than specifically calling somebody out as that's misleading. Right. That's right. I mean, something can be misleading yeah. in appearance without any fault of the advocate being misleading, right? Right. So um, right. I think that's all right. Now, let me ask you, if you are on the receiving end of some language that you don't think is uh, appropriate, you know, and you have a responsive brief left yet to file, um, 
how, how do you handle that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it depends on the situation, but uh, if it's quite obvious that I'm being attacked, I might highlight the fact that opposing counsel seems to uh, be more concerned about attacking me than my arguments, yeah. but, you know, or something like that. I might call it out, but uh, you know, probably better to take the high road and just argue it as if he he or she was not uh, had not included that uh, unprofessional language or unprofessional approach necessarily and just go right back to, you know, his or his or her arguments are wrong for the following reasons. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree with the, uh, uh, was it Michelle Obama who said when, when they go low, we go high, you know, I agree right. with that sentiment. I will tell you though, that, you know, if I can find a way to, um, you know, make someone regret an overly aggressive word choice by maybe throwing it back at them in some way that's, you know, that's not not doing to them what they did to me, but by showing just how ridiculous that word choice was, right? right? Um, I will try and find a way to work that in just because I think that that's, um, you know, if there was any sting of that word, I want to try and, and get rid of it, right, to, to, to knock it out in the reply and... It, you always have to tamper your uh, desire to <laughs> desire to respond to what what best fits the situation and, and the advocacy and that kind of thing. Well, and I tend to agree with you. And it doesn't even just have to be when their response has some phrase or something that like they call it absurd and you want to attack it. I I have I don't know about you, but I have seen this particularly frustrating in the motion for extension context where you're trying to get an extension and, and you say, Hey, I need 30 days. And the other side might say something stupid, like I'll give you 21, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not going to agree to 30. So it, your first instinct is being like, what are we doing here? Why are we bickering over seven days? Right. So I will show not tell in the brief or excuse me in the motion by saying, you know, here's what I want court. And I've conferred with opposing counsel who, who has said that they would only agree to 21 days, but there is no, but, but they didn't identify any prejudice with respects to the extra seven days or something, something where I'm showing how, instead of telling the court, how absurd the position is. Yeah. I think that's perfect. Yeah. This brings up the, one of the last things I want to talk about, which is, you know, I find that my, uh, my focus on the tone of the brief, it, it sometimes changes as I'm writing it. Like sometimes I feel like we start out a brief with a little bit more indignation maybe than, than we want because we've just read, you know, maybe we've just read the initial brief and we're, you know, sort of full of excitement about responding to it. And maybe we write a little bit more aggressively than, than uh, just because you know, adrenaline's flowing and that sort of thing, right? So uh, I find that sometimes one of the things I'm doing as I'm finishing, as I'm revising the brief is looking at the tone and sometimes, you know, uh, knocking it down just a little bit here or there, right? Or, or making different word choices, in the, uh, you know, now, now that time has passed <laughs> and I feel very comfortable with the argument, I find that sometimes uh, tonal adjustments are something that get made towards the end. Once you really have a feel for what is this brief going to say, you know, how is it going to read? It's something that, um, you know, is kind of always uh, subject to revision. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you just actually there was something you said there that I think uh, is important to emphasize. That you said that uh, it, you 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 tone you tone it down. You tone the tone yeah. down after you've become more com- comfortable with the arguments, yes. and I think that's important to emphasize because mistones, aggressive tones, ad hominem tones, really at the root of it is is, is a lack of comfort with your own argument, uh, and and it and that and that's very clear to the judges when they read that. So I, I agree with you that <laughs> that's why you, and it kind of goes back to what I said about their motions for rehearing, you know, you're going to get it, you're going to write it and then you got to rewrite it because that tone is not the one you want to take. The, the initial reaction of getting that decision you thought was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I will also add one other thing. This is where having somebody else that's on a, a, a objective and that's not been living with it, read your work before you file it to make sure that there's no nothing strikes i mean we we do it for 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 typos but also that nothing strikes the person as as a as a bad tone or an inappropriate tone yes yes that's an important job of a trusted proofreader right is to catch those sorts of things and and i do find myself you know if i am not sure um about a particular word choice um i have very partners at the firm or even outside the firm that I will call and say, Hey, you know, here's the situation. What do you think of this? Um, and I guess depending on what answer I want, I know there's people I can call who are more or less aggressive (laughs) in this analysis, right? (laughs) But yeah, no, the advice of other people is, is important. And particularly people who are detached from the case, right? A partner who's not the trial lawyer, (laughs) you know, who who will always want more aggressive language. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, I, I do that as well. And I think I find that the zingers that we put in there are the ones that really need to be vetted by an objective person. Yeah. <laughs> zingers are important in a brief, but sometimes they can be the tone you don't want to take. That's right. That's right. Uh, you, that's right. You want, you want the zinger to be the, the, the argument, right. The persuasiveness of the argument and not necessarily the, you know, the cutesy, uh, way you've come up with describing it or whatever, even though, you know, we're all writers and we like to be creative and we like to come up with those, um, you know, one liners and that sort of thing. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Um, and right. part of the, our professionalism is in making those choices. Exactly. Well, thanks, Chris. I think that um, I think we've we've probably done uh, tone of briefs to death, but uh, you know that's what we're here for. I'm I'm happy to have been a part of it again, and and uh, uh, hopefully my tone was good during this. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Chris. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks again to Chris Donovan for being my guest on the show. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. When you need a bond, you often need it quickly. CSBA's contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment now, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready whenever your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.